This is the Industrial IoT Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. We have seen the emergence of what I call modern Internet of Things. It's really the connectivity piece and the data aggregation piece that is usually missing in the infrastructure right now in the market. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Market Scale Industrial IoT Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the show. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up for you on today's episode. First of all, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked to Mary Beth Hall and the team from Brown Pelican Wi-Fi right before they were about to provide some Wi-Fi out at Daytona International Speedway. And we got them back on the podcast this week to talk about that experience and what it was like and what they learned from it and how they see the stadium going experience changing in the future as Wi-Fi becomes more accessible, easier to set up, easier to provide at stadiums like Daytona International. And so we talked again on the podcast this week just a little bit more about that and how in the future the stadium going experience could really change as a result of increased connectivity so when 5g becomes a reality and when it's able to be paired with wi-fi it really creates this incredible experience where you're able to be so connected that uh, it's going to change that experience of going to a game or going to a race something along those lines where you're able to have smart stadiums you could probably check how long concession lines are how long lines for the bathroom are, uh, understanding traffic outside of the stadium, what it's going to take to get in, different things like that uh, that maybe you can't do now uh, because even still today when you go to stadiums, oftentimes it's hard to connect to the internet while you're there. So you're not able to share as much about that experience when you're there at the stadium. But looking forward and how IoT can be brought into a stadium when there's increased connectivity with Wi-Fi and 5G, you can really see a day where that experience is going to change and be different for the fans. And so that's something we discuss here with Mary Beth Hall from Brown Pelican Wi-Fi, just about what that future could look like in sports arenas and sports stadiums. So that's going to be the first feature on the show this week. Our second feature of the show today is a conversation that our correspondent Maggie Shin had with co-founder and CEO of Phosphorus Security, Inc., Chris Rowland, and he's going to talk about the security of IoT devices and how they're really just computers in a different looking package, and uh, they require a, a certain level of security to make sure that your devices are all protected and that uh, personal information doesn't get out. So specifically for businesses, how can you ensure that personal information stored in IoT devices and kept there aren't isn't able to be accessed by uh, nefarious actors, basically. And so he's going to talk about the trends that he's seeing in this arena, uh, including data hostaging, as well as who's at risk and the mindset of a company uh, that needs to tackle this issue. So he's going to dive into that, and that's going to be a conversation with our correspondent, Maggie Shen, as the second feature on today's episode. Really excited to get to bring you this program today. So without further ado, let's dive into that first conversation with Mary Beth Hall, the CEO of Brown Pelican Wi-Fi, coming up next here on the Market Scale Industrial IoT podcast. Joining me now here on the podcast is Mary Beth Hall. She is the CEO of Brown Pelican Wi-Fi. Hello, Mary Beth. How are you doing today? Hi, Tyler. I'm doing really well. Thanks. 
Excellent. Well, hey, it's really good to talk to you again. And today we're following up on our conversation from last week with Brown Pelican, uh, because last week they were getting ready to go out and provide some Wi-Fi out at Daytona International Speedway for Brennan Poole's number 30 truck. Uh, That must have been just an absolutely incredible experience going out to one of the most famous racetracks in the world. Mary Beth, just what was the experience like? How was it? Was it just sensory overload all over the place? (laughs) That's a really good way to put it. It it was sensory overload. Uh, uh, this was my first NASCAR experience and, you know, nothing like starting with the Super Bowl of a sport to get your first, to get your feet wet because I'm totally spoiled. Like I never want to go to a race without being in this VIP stance, uh, standard that we were in. But, you know, because of what we were doing, we pretty much had access to everything, including you know, being behind the scenes with the teams for the truck series in their garage. Mm -hmm. Um, We were also able to go into the pits right before the race. And we were also able to go out onto the track for the driver send off basically. And that was really phenomenal. It was a great experience. Boy, that's in, that's just absolutely incredible. Is it as loud as I perceive that it would be being in a place like that? My gosh, (laughs) is it loud? Yeah. You know, we sat in the stands to watch the truck race and we were, you know, pretty close. We weren't, we weren't very high up, but when those trucks all come around the track at the same time, it's ear splitting. I can see why people wear your, you know, uh, earphones or headphones because loud, it's super loud. Yeah. Well, where, where does this rank in terms of maybe most famous places that Brown Pelican has been, um, and, and kind of gotten to do some work there? Where does this rank maybe for you in terms of most famous or, or favorite places? It's way up there, Tyler. As a matter of fact, I'd say it's probably the second most exciting place I've ever been with a Wi-Fi network. The first and my favorite all time is Alcatraz because we installed the first public and only public Wi-Fi on Alcatraz a few years ago. That was an experience. That's incredible. I was actually there, oh man, not that long ago, maybe a couple of years ago. So I'm sure I actually, I got to experience some Wi-Fi provided by Brown yeah. Packers. So there we go. There we go. That's uh, That that really is incredible. And um, just what a place to visit, Alcatraz. That's, uh, that's really, really awesome. Just being right there in San Francisco, which is uh, pretty close to where you're located. Is that right? It yeah. is. It is. Our, our headquarters is actually in Sausalito, right across the bay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, how did how did a race team and how did a race track present uh, a, a unique challenge, maybe one that you haven't experienced before? You guys have been all over the place. And last time on the last episode, we talked about providing Wi-Fi for events out in the desert or on a mountainside. Uh, what, did, what was a racetrack like and how, how did that present maybe a, a unique challenge that you haven't seen before? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, this this particular track has a pretty pretty decent Wi-Fi infrastructure in in certain locations. The team area though was an was a the truck team area was a place that didn't have very robust coverage at all. So everyone was either bringing a MiFi device and trying to do their own thing. Um, what we were able to do, and one of the challenges that we overcame, was using point-to-point antennas, we were able to pull the signal, the the internet signal, basically, from a a truck, you know, half a quarter of a mile away and place an antenna on top of of that truck. And by truck, I mean the tractor trailers. They're called haulers Mm -hmm. that the teams use 
for you know when they when the when the cars aren't on the track they're in the garages and that's where they're working on the cars to prep them or the trucks to prep them for the race so we actually ran a point-to-point shot from a hauler you know like i said about a quarter of a mile away to the roof of brennan Poole's hauler that's how we were able to get a, uh, an internet connection mm-hmm. and then we used access points and a router and a switch um, and a controller to distribute the Wi-Fi for, for Brennan's team in his area. So that was an interesting challenge to overcome, uh, similar to the things that we've done in outdoor locations and kind of off the grid type locations. Yeah, absolutely. So you got to, I guess, use a little bit of the experience from um, other, uh, I guess, other events and that sort of thing and provide it into this context is certainly something that is, uh, is, is, I guess, an ability that impresses me, you know, just understanding how this works and how you can use experience from one event and, and bring it into another one uh, is certainly something that is, uh, that's really awesome to see. Now, you, you didn't, you were there also demoing um, some other products as well alongside uh, providing Wi-Fi for Brennan Poole's um, team, right? Wasn't there a, a fan experience or something like that that also had Wi-Fi that you were working with? We didn't work directly with the fan experience. Okay. We were demonstrating Wi-Fi, basically Wi-Fi-enabled marketing. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Potential sponsors. And that was interesting. We, we had the opportunity to speak with a a few really great high profile brands that are interested in bringing a Wi-Fi network to racetracks specifically for, you know, for NASCAR races. Uh, so one of the things that we were demonstrating that they loved is the idea of data capture and analytics around who's using the network so that if, you know, if a brand wants to, to do remarketing post event, They've got really rich data that they can use to direct their marketing efforts. So ROI becomes a big factor and being able to communicate with their audience post event is, is a big deal. And uh, again, we, we talked to some pretty interesting, I can't like, I can't tell you because it's sort of like NDA, (laughs) but (laughs) it's always like that in this business, right? right? right. Um, It's all top secret. But yeah, so that was that was pretty cool. We we garnered a lot of interest. We have lots of follow up meetings that we're scheduling right now to keep this going throughout the race season. Yeah, that's really exciting because the race season is a long one um, and one that has a very short off season, if I remember correctly. Um, but just in, in your experience and then being there and being able to provide Wi-Fi for that Brennan Pool truck um, there for the Friday night race, do you feel like what what you're able to do at Brown Pelican, you're able to offer a competitive advantage to, to teams that utilize Wi-Fi in this way? Yeah, and I think, Tyler, because of we talked about this earlier, the experiences that we've had in these weird locations, we're so nimble and so flexible And that's really our competitive advantage. We operate kind of on the, I don't want to say the bleeding edge, but certainly the cutting edge, leading edge, whatever, you know, however, whatever term you want to use. We're always for new, new opportunities to try new technology. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is giving us the advantage in these kind of situations. We can use all that experience with some of these amazing places that we've worked and take it and apply it to a situation like a NASCAR race. Um, and, and the thing that's really interesting too is, you know, you, we think about, okay, let's make the entire track have 
a great Wi-Fi network. And that's ideal and, and that's aspirational and that's eventually what we want to mm-hmm. do. But in the meantime, what's really cool about it is we can just bring in to a specific location like we did for Brennan's team. Then we can kind of spider out from that location and start spreading out to other areas within the same basic geographic area. So now we've created a net, let's say, a big net that you know kind of catches everybody's knees within a certain a certain footprint. Mm-hmm. Or we can do multiple versions of that throughout the the track. Or we can take it all the way to the highest level, which is let's put a Wi-Fi network in that supports the entire track. We're right now in those early stage conversations. So, you know, we're not there yet, but we're definitely garnering a lot of interest in these smaller sort of uh, bubbles that we can create for different uses. Yeah. And just as you're saying that, I'm imagining a day where an entire stadium or an entire racetrack is able to be, you know, kind of connected together. And that would definitely be an exciting thing because I remember, uh, you know, growing up and going to sporting events or uh, just even in the last few years trying to, you know, use a phone to post a picture at a, uh, you know, at, at any sporting event. And it's just always been a struggle, right? Because, uh, you know, networks get overwhelmed when there are that many people there. But in the future, as we see this going, and as you mentioned, creating those bubbles, I think that you could see a day where there is a, connected stadium and you're able to easily post pictures. And I think obviously teams and brands would love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, as, as Wi-Fi technology and cellular technology get kind of closer and closer mm-hmm. as you know, 5g is going to be, it's going to be a big, a big benefit to consumers, especially to end users, because it's going to allow me and you to get a better experience just by nature of having cell connectivity. However, it'll still have its limits. And in a very high density environment, I mean, there's a hundred thousand seats at Daytona. So when you put a hundred thousand people in a stadium, regardless of how, you know, what cellular network they're on, there's always the opportunity for disruption for, you know, signal degrading with Wi-Fi, we can kind of fill in the gaps and support a better user experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're caught. And that's what I was saying before about the nature of Brown Pelican is we're, we're on that edge where we're looking at how to utilize the best of everything. We're a Samsung partner. We use Samsung wireless equipment and Samsung, of course, because of their infrastructure around mobile devices is really focused on building technologies that are going to start to let the best of all options for connectivity work together seamlessly. So you're going to see a lot of changes coming up in the next couple of years with the, you know, with 5G launching and when it's ubiquitous and we're all on it, we're going to look at, we're going to be seeing how we can, we can merge the cellular technology with Wi-Fi and get a really incredible experience. Well, that's exciting, and I'm also looking forward to just uh, following where Brown Pelican goes and uh, what interesting locations you're at next. You know, first Daytona, and then uh, then who knows what's up. Yeah, we'll go into space next. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really the only way you can beat, you know, going to Daytona. So, uh, you know, space space sounds pretty good next for a next uh, a way to top Daytona. But hey, yeah, right. <laughs> that sounds pretty incredible. Well, hey, Mary Beth Hall, CEO of Brown Pelican Wi-Fi. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Market Scale Podcast. Thank you, Tyler. As always, appreciate it. 
Coming up next here on the Market Scale IoT podcast is Maggie Shen's conversation with Chris Rowland, the co-founder and CEO of Phosphorus Security Inc. And he's going to talk about the security of IoT devices and what it looks like to secure devices along these lines. He says that cybersecurity is an existential threat for companies and that it's something that they need to be considering on a regular basis. Now, with the addition of connected lighting, smart building management capabilities, IP cameras, mobile phones, the security of these devices is imperative, basically, to to the future of a company. So he's going to talk about the trends that he's been seeing, as well as who is particularly at risk. And he has a pretty big statement as far as that goes. So you're going to want to hear what he has to say coming up next. This is Chris Rowland talking to Maggie Shen coming up next on the Market Scale IoT Podcast. like to start out talking with you today about your background in the industry. You've been speaking about cybersecurity for two and a half decades now. What have you seen from 25 years ago to now? How has this space changed? I think the biggest change has been in the adversary. Uh, 25 years ago, we were largely concerned about really kind of theoretical vulnerabilities. Someone could get in. Someone might embarrass you by changing your website. Today, the cybersecurity is an existential threat. A company could literally go out of business. Equifax could have gone out of business. I guess they still could. Um, so whereas 25 years ago, it was more vandalism or keeping trespassers off your lawn. Today, it's it's um, a business can die and businesses have died. Uh, because of uh, cybersecurity breaches. Additionally, the monetization uh, of computer hacking is just remarkable how innovative the computer hackers are on being able to extract financial value. Uh, Ten years ago now, in 2008, um, the estimates were that that was the year that the amount of revenue generated by cybercrime exceeded the international narcotics trade. Wow. I was going to ask you this later, but that begs the question, and you touched on it a little bit, Chris, but for businesses, especially ones that say um, maybe they don't have government ties or um, projects with the government, companies that think maybe a hack to them wouldn't matter, what exactly is at risk for any company, big or small, beyond just data being compromised? Well, today, our businesses run entirely on top of technology. I mean, except for a, um, a few classes of maybe small small businesses, um, most most companies today, and certainly if you look at verticals um, like healthcare, industrial, manufacturing, finance, are entirely driven by their technology, and so a, a very common new trend is um, a term I started using in the '90s called data hostaging. And it was really just a made-up term at the time, and and now it's it's a, a very real business practice, where hackers uh, break into computers and hold your data hostage. The more common term is ransomware, so your data is encrypted or stolen, and you have to pay to get it back. Uh, we saw this happen recently to the city of Atlanta, where. 
the city was was held ransom for fifty thousand dollars in Bitcoin, and ended up spending five million dollars trying to clean up the attack. And they were down for weeks. The courts were down for weeks. The police department lost all of their body cams recordings. So, um, you know, if your if your if your books are on a computer, if your customers are on a computer, if you depend on those computers, uh, and you don't have adequate security measures and simple blocking and tackling like backups and and restore plans, which we find actually after the fact that um, a lot of these older computers are, are simply not even backed up and they're and 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 some municipalities have to actually rekey in records from paper. I wonder with you talking about that, we hear news stories here and there about, um, you know, countries being hacked, like you said, Atlanta, big banks. Um, but how widespread are cyber attacks in your experience? Is one type of company or person or business more vulnerable than another? The only businesses that haven't been compromised are the ones that don't know it. Everyone's been compromised. Everyone from the CIA to the NSA to the bakery, um, the only people who think they haven't been compromised are the ones that aren't aware they already have been. You mentioned data hostaging. What other trends are you witnessing right now? Well, I mean, I'll talk a bit more about data hostaging. There has been a strong targeting of the healthcare sector, specifically hospitals, uh, by data hostage actors because they know if they take over the key systems of a hospital, such as the um, MRI machines, CT machines, et cetera, the hospital has to pay to get online. And what what they're doing was relatively smart is they set the price low enough, maybe $25,000, where that's relatively inexpensive and relatively that is relatively inexpensive if your systems are down in an emergency room, you can't do x-rays, et cetera. It's easier for them to just pay. Outside of data hostaging, the the new common attack themes somewhat move with technology trends. So an, uh, a new attack trend is for attackers to deploy software to use your computing resources to mine cryptocurrencies. So they can take your computer and make it work for them to create bitcoins or some other type of currency for them um, in its idle time. And so that's a that's a new trend. Whereas whereas someone is stealing your compute cycles and in in mass scale, it can be very lucrative. With the Internet of Things and all the devices that come along with that now on the network, IP security cameras, smart lighting, uh, thermostats, connected building management devices, etc. Is there a difference, Chris, between cybersecurity in general and the security of IoT devices? Well, there's a big difference. So, you know, we've spent 25 years thwarting attacks against computer servers, Unix servers against Windows PCs, because these were the common targets. And so there's a well-developed ecosystem. If you're the chief security officer of a bank 
and you need to pick a way to secure your PCs and your servers and your network, you have many choices to commercially select from. In the case of the IoT, the security is really a 25-year reset, and the, te the security technology in the IoT looks like it's from the 1990s. Um, many times we'll see... IoT devices are really computers just wrapped in plastic or metal. And many times the software they're running is 20 years old or even older. Um, I think people don't think about keeping things up to date like they would your phone or your computer. You know, this metaphor of the update all button on the computer or on the phone is now common vernacular. People are accustomed to keeping their software up to date. But no one thinks about the security camera, the router, the 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 uh, the light switch, the light bulb, and um, the half life of those. So the length to which uh, update is available versus being deployed is about eight years. And if you look at in the in the world of computers, if you didn't patch your computer for eight years. Not only would you be hacked, you'd be lucky if it was even running. And and so I think there's going to emerge a market of new vendors to secure the Internet of Things. And that's something I'm very passionate about. I wake up and I'm obsessed with securing the Internet of Things. I can even remember the first time someone used the term Internet of Things to me. I was standing in my office in, in I think, 2010 and a guy named Chris Darby, who runs a venture capital firm called Incutel, mentioned it to me. I said, what is that? The Internet of Things? That is such a cool term. And uh, I've been really obsessed with it since that conversation. Explain to me how the security of IoT relates to the larger issue of cybersecurity data. I mean, but what I mean by that is if someone's light is compromised, is this going to be, you know, someone's just going to turn it on and off and play a game with you? Or can they actually access your data on the main network? That's a great question. And so and it's actually the most common question I get around IoT security. Who cares about my refrigerator? Who cares about my light bulb? Well, nobody really does. And I think the days of hackers playing games with devices are kind of, unfortunately kind of kind of over. And and it's all about generating revenue now. And so there are a couple of things that could happen with a device like a light bulb or a refrigerator or a dishwasher uh, or a ca security camera. Those are the one of the favorite targets, which is somewhat of an oxymoron that the security cameras the, literally the weak leak the security camera is literally the weakest link on the network today. So a light bulb or a refrigerator or a security camera typically runs an older version of Linux or some other what we call embedded operating system that doesn't have doesn't allow you to run other security software on top of it. And so it becomes a weak link in the security chain. And that means it's easy to compromise. So someone may have no interest in turning a light bulb off or on. However, once that's compromised, it's used as what's called a pivot. And a pivot in computer security terms or hacking terms means that an attacker can use that one weak node, 
that light bulb or that camera or that refrigerator, once they compromise that, then they can get onto the rest of the network. So now they can attack everything else that that device is connected to, and typically that would be connected to your intranet, your internal network. So what can businesses do about this? IoT security is really an emerging market, and I think we're going to have some big problems before mainstream pays serious attention to it. Uh, I think situational awareness or knowing what devices are on the network is certainly the most important. And there are tools and products available for that. Setting an IoT security policy, you know, um, we've had this with disruptive technologies. I've seen several generations of this where the technology was introduced into the enterprise network before policy was. The first big one was uh, was Wi-Fi. And so I'd go and talk to a potential client. I'd say, do you have... Um, Wi-Fi security in place. Oh, we don't have any Wi-Fi here. Well, I get my computer out. Well, yeah, you do. Oh, well, that's just that's just the hotspot under my desk for me. But no one else has one. <laughs> and so you literally have the the CIO breaking the rule himself or herself. And so and then the next was around around mobile devices, phones. And so the phones started connecting to the corporate networks. And then the com- and then com- and then products came out. Products came out to secure Wi-Fi, so now we can use Wi-Fi safely. Products came out to uh, implement what's called BYOD policy, bring your own device, so that you can, when you're on your corporate network, software is running on the device so that it operates safely. We haven't seen policies or technologies like that yet for the Internet of Things. In parallel, though, uh, if you look at the say Amazon's enterprise software, they they want a uh, Amazon Echo in every conference room. They want to replace the speakerphones, and so some of that may be being done with the security consequences being thought of as an afterfact. And that's generally where we have problems: is is when things are installed and then the security guys have to deal with it later on. But additionally, if you look across um, industrial control systems, if you look at the hospitality industry, we've got a lot of automation going into those industries, and security has not been built in from the ground up. What do you see that are the biggest challenges, particularly for businesses, Chris, with trying to secure IOT and um, their their companies. You know, it's it's new. Um, people don't look at IOT devices as computers, and they should. Um, effectively, most IOT devices are basically small Linux servers, and a Linux server in a data center is secured. It's managed. It's treated as it's treated. It's got special heating, cooling, air conditioning, uh, fire controls. It's it's treated as a valuable asset and it's secured. But the rest of these Linux devices that are wrapped wrapped in shiny, blinky plastic or metal are not thought of as a server, uh, and they're not treated as such. And I think 
the first step is IoT policy. Do the IoT devices go on the main network or do they go on their own guest network? You know, is there a sign that you must be this tall to get on the ride, right? You've got to be this secure before you can actually get on the network. I think that would be a good idea. I think keeping the security officer in the loop on new deployments and getting a ground truth, finding out, okay, what do I, what is on my network? I talked to giant technology companies and they're the first to say, we have no idea what people have brought in. We'd like to find out. Can you help us? And that's, that's what we do. It sounds like there, there needs to be a mentality, um, particularly for, organizations, companies, businesses, that cybersecurity is not just a, a one-done thing. Install this one software or change your passwords once and forget about it. Is, is that fair? Well, you nailed it. And also in the IoT, you can't install any software on IoT devices. There's no way to do it. The only software that will actually install on an IoT device is a virus. <laughs> you don't want that on there either. So that one of the challenges and opportunities for, for industry is how do you secure something that you can't run your own software on? You have to use what's called agentless technology. So you have to be able to secure these devices without actually installing anything on them. And um, that's some of what, we, what I've invented and... I think the direction for the market will be is how do you secure these with a very light touch? You can't install McAfee or Norton on your Amazon Alexa, right? There's just, there's no way to do it. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the Market Scale IoT Podcast. Thank you so much to our guests this week, Mary Beth Hall from Brown Pelican Wi-Fi and Chris Rowland from Phosphorus Security, Inc. We appreciate them very much. Thank you also to my correspondent today, Maggie Shen, for conducting that last interview. And thank you, listener, for tuning in to the podcast this week. We appreciate it very much. If you enjoyed this content, there's more just like it over at the Market Scale Industrial IoT Industry page. There you can find more written content as well as videos, more podcasts just like this one, and much, much more. So make sure to go check that out as well. Just head to marketscale.com, click on industries, scroll down to industrial IoT, and that is where you will find all of that great stuff. Also, we cover 14 different industries here at MarketScale, and so there's bound to be a lot of overlap. So if you're interested in other industries, let's say Pro-AV or uh, architecture, engineering, and construction, we have those industry pages as well, where you can check out more content along those lines uh, as well. So make sure to go check those out too. Uh, that is all we have time for on this week's episode of the Market Scale IoT Podcast. I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Until next time.